Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, (laughs) good morning. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, elders. I feel uh, loved by them and by you. And um, Lord willing, I will spontaneously combust here in my late 80s or early 90s in the middle of a sermon. And the next young buck will come up, sweep up the ashes, and pick up where I left off. (laughs) In Romans. (laughs) That was good. You know, usually my parents just happen to be in town to watch a couple football games. They're not here for this. And they usually like to fly under the radar. In fact, they often say, hey, don't mention that we're here. So, so much about that. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Well, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 10. And you guys are kidding me, but we've made it through Romans chapter 10 in just three sermons. And we're going to finish up Romans 10. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. And then pray, and then we're going to work through this important passage. Let me read Romans 10, verse, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him, call in him, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, verse 17, faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people that I I love very much. Thank you for what you've done here in spite of us, in spite of me. Thank you for the word, the gospel, the good news of your son. Thank you that we can open it freely on a Sunday morning. 
Thank you for the truth that we sang. Though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. Mercy always has the last word. Mercy triumphs over judgment in your Son. Thank you, Lord, that we can come battered and bruised from a week and we can come and open your word and we can hear from you. Help us to understand this text. I pray that you would strengthen believers, that you would put steel in the spine of your children who are are weary from the battle with sin in this world. I pray for any of my friends in this room who came in not yet trusting in Jesus, still blinded, dead in their sins. I pray by your sovereign mercy that you would open up their eyes to see the beautiful truth of the Son of God and that you would give them the very faith that you require of them and that they would put their trust in Christ. And I pray that you'd help me communicate these things in a way that would serve to illuminate Christ and not myself. That I would decrease and that you would increase. Have your way among your people. And in this place I pray now for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So where are we in Romans? Just by way of review, and you've hopefully been used to that, I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of the context of where we are in Romans. Remember the gospel that Paul has been preaching up to this point. It's been a gospel of God's grace that that all mankind is needy. We are equally broken before God. Whether we are religious people like the Jews or whether we are Gentile, all of us, are equally accountable before God. That's the point of the beginning chapters of Romans. And the answer to the helpless estate of all mankind is the gospel, the good news that God the Father has put forward God the Son to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, a propitiation for the sins of all those that would turn and trust in Him. But in order to turn and trust in Jesus, we need faith. And even that faith that we put in place and trust in Jesus when we are saved is a gift of God. And we are saved not by any work that we do, that's Romans 4, but by faith we're justified, we're made right with God before, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then this faith, which is a gift that justifies us before a holy God, has unbelievable and beautiful consequences in the life of a new believer. It causes us to have peace with God. And then he concludes in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with no separation regardless of what this world may throw at us even after our salvation. This gospel is glorious and it is beautiful. And as he's writing this gospel to this Roman church, He understands that some of them may object because they may say, well, Paul, you're telling us this good news of this God who saves a people, but when we read the account of his dealings with his Old Testament people, Israel, it seems like God may have failed a little bit because at least the majority of the ethnic Jews, the people that God created as a nation to be his his city on a hill that he would bless all the nations through, has, by and large, rejected the Messiah. So if God can't be trusted to save those people and bring them all the way home, can he be trusted for me? And Paul's answer to that in Romans chapter 9 is yes. 
But he takes a strange sort of way. He, he answers it in, an, in, an, uh, in a way that we don't expect. He says that not all of Israel is truly Israel. In fact, he says that just because somebody is physically descended from Israel, they're ethnically Jewish, doesn't mean that they're actually a Jew. But what it means to be a true Jew is to be a child of Abraham, not in the blood by ethnicity, but by faith, to have the faith that Abraham had. And so God has made a people. He's made them through faith. And how do these people... People get the faith. It's not because they're good and God agrees with anything in them. It's because God in his sovereign mercy, and this is what Romans 9 is all about, one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, God in his sovereign mercy has a purpose of election. He has chosen a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue, and he has given them faith so that they would turn and trust and believe in what his son has done. So God has not failed. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands with a four-leaf clover, hoping that he ends on the one where we love him. God is able to make a people out of nothing. And so the point is that if you're a Christian today, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's not because of anything good in you that God saw that he wanted on his team. It's because of his grace. And Romans 9 is decisive. Romans 9 is a mountain peak of Scripture. It gives us this great truth that salvation depends not on the person who wills, but on God who has mercy. And he will have mercy on whomever he will, and he will harden whomever he wills. And if that's all that the Bible said about salvation, we might be tempted to close our Bibles and go home because we realize that God is utterly and completely and exhaustively sovereign over the salvation of souls. But then we read Romans 10, where God says that that's not the whole picture. Yes, God is sovereign, but the way he works out his sovereignty is through the means of the gospel coming to bear on the hearts of the people that he is saving. And so he puts together these two seemingly irreconcilable truths, the utter free sovereignty of God in Romans 9, and the responsibility of faith in preaching and evangelism in Romans 10. So I want us to see three truths in this text and make application along the way. Truth number one from our text is this. God, who is sovereign over salvation, that's what Romans 9 I think is about, has made evangelism necessary. God who is sovereign over salvation has made evangelism necessary. Let's just look at and follow the logic of verses 14 and 15 from our text in Romans chapter 10. Paul writes, and in the preceding verse in Romans 10 verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then in verse 14, he says, he asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. In other words, you cannot call on someone that you have never heard about. The gospel has not been brought and they can't believe in him. They can't call on him unless they've believed in him. The clear context of Romans chapter 10 is that salvation is found in no other name. There, there, if you do not believe in Jesus, you can't call on him. And as we're saying, as we will read when we continue, if you don't call on him, you cannot be saved. So this is a question that sometimes Christians wonder. What about some innocent islander? What about somebody that's in some remote part of the world that has never heard about the gospel? 
Is, is, there, is there some way for them to be saved apart from believing or hearing the gospel of Jesus? And friends, I think the clear implication of this text and really the whole message of Romans is that that's a faulty presupposition. There is no innocent island. That person does not exist. The whole argument that Paul has been making up to this point is that all of us are guilty. Every single person. Whether it's in Romans chapter 1, we look at the creation and we reject God and suppress the truth, or whether we have rejected the direct presentation of the revealed will of God, all the world is accountable to God, every single one of us. And the only way, and this has major implications for the way we do church and what we talk about and what our main message is, it, is, it must be the gospel because they can't call on him in whom they have not believed. And the only thing that separates, there are only two types of people in this world, those who are believing and trusting in Jesus and those who are not. That's Paul's point here. And he asked in the second question, in the second half of verse 14, it says, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So you can't believe in someone that you don't know anything about. So the point is, is that we need, this is the point of, of salvation. This is in fact the point of the Bible, is that the, the, very, the very fulcrum, the crux, the, the pinnacle of what it means to be right with a holy God is to believe in him, Jesus, and to know about him and to hear about him. That's the whole point. Salvation comes from trusting in a person, Jesus, not by a adopting a kind of moral ethic of the Bible. Those things may be certainly helpful to do in our life after coming to Jesus. But do you see what Paul is doing here? He's whittling reconciliation with God down to trusting in what his son Jesus has done in his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. In him. This is what the apostle this is what the, the apostle said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. They said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do, do you believe that? The Bible is very clear about that. Friends, make no mistake. The Bible has much to say about how we act, how we live. God is very concerned with that. But the good news of the gospel is that the way of reconciliation before a holy God does not come through adopting some paradigm or some set of ethics or some keys to successful living. No, the Bible, and here the Apostle Paul, simplifies things for us. It says that the problem is sin and the only solution is faith in the person and work of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is why Jesus can atone for our sin, because he is God in the flesh. He, he is fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, and he, the second person of the Trinity, not created, co-eternal with God. In fact, Colossians 1 says that through Jesus, all that was made was made, becomes a man. Think of just about the, the humility of the creator of the universe, the Son of God, becoming a man. And then subjecting himself to everything that we endure, every temptation that we face, every trial that we face, yet without sin. And then laying down his perfect, obedient life on the cross 
to absorb the wrath of God the Father for the sin of his people. That's what Jesus has done. And Jesus can atone for the sin of all of his people because he is eternally holy. He's the eternally holy son of God. And he satisfies it. He extinguishes it. He removes it as far as the east is from the west, as Reuben read for us this morning from Psalm 103 in our call to worship. And then because he is innocent and he's God, God the Father vindicates him and raises him from the dead. And now he is not just the substitute for our sin, he is the victor over our sin. And now he reigns because he's risen and he commands and calls all people everywhere to not try and do better, but to trust in him. Because you can't do better until you trust in him. And when you trust in him, that's evidence that you have a new heart, which now then enables you to live for his glory. Do you see the, 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 the point that Paul is whittling down all of humanity to when he says that you have to believe in, in Jesus? And how, then he continues, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Think about that. Think about what we just read in Romans chapter 9 about how salvation depends. Romans chapter 9 verse 16 says, So then it depends not on him who wills or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. And here we see that God has bound himself, he's fastened himself to the means of the communication of the gospel. Friends, this is... This is Humbling and spectacular. No one comes to faith apart from hearing the good news about Jesus. Hearing it. News must be proclaimed. It's shared. It's spoken. It's heard. Have you heard, um, I think there's good intentions behind this verse, and I understand, not verse, but this statement, and I understand it, so I don't mean to dog on it too much, except maybe just a little bit. Have you heard that phrase, sometimes it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi? I don't know if he truly said it or not, but regardless, I'm sure you've heard this phrase. It says, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Doesn't that, that sounds kind of cool? Except that it's completely nonsensical according to this verse. You have... The gospel is, can't just be seen through good deeds because then those good deeds could be maybe attributed to some other thing or some sort of human morality. It, it, it just a good deed alone, unless it's attached to the communication of our sin, God's holiness, Jesus' death and resurrection won't be tied. It can just be easily tied to a sort of kind of ambiguous goodness. And what Paul is saying here is that nobody comes to faith apart from the hearing of the good news of the gospel. And let's expand this idea of preaching. I'm not just talking about what I'm doing right here on a Sunday morning. I think this includes all of the communication of the gospel. Every person in this room is a messenger. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are a herald of the gospel. And so that, that little boring cubicle that you find yourself in, that you're grumpy about, that you complain about on Facebook, maybe that's, maybe that's the pulpit that God has given you. To be a kind of herald of the gospel, maybe, maybe he's put you there to bring the good news, one little deposit of the good news, one little drop of water in some hard soil that God may use to bring life to a person like we just read in Ezekiel 37, where your, your word becomes part of how God brings life to a valley of dry bones. That's what Paul is, is saying here. 
How are they to hear without someone preaching? Think about this. This is God who has created everything out of nothing and who says, I'm sovereign over the salvation of souls and I'm going to bind myself to the means of the sharing of the gospel. That's stunning. That's, that's stunning. That's, that's like Michael Jordan saying, I'm guaranteeing that I'm going to win this game, but I'm giving you the ball and you drive it to the hoop. <laughs> Michael, why don't, why don't you do it? Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Friends, you see the corporate responsibility of the church that we, I mean, we talked about it this morning. We've sent people on missions Teams. We've sent two couples out from among here, but let's not just think abroad. Let's think locally. In our spheres of influence, we, we Christians are to be sent. Are you sendable? Do you know this gospel? Is it just a personal thing for you? Or do you realize that your life is a life that's meant to be on mission? And this is how he concludes. Think about this, just this image. As it is written, and he's quoting from a verse in Isaiah 52 here. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Uh, that's an interesting image because I don't think feet are very pretty. In fact, I can't imagine being a, like a podiatrist and having to look at people's feet all day. Funny little story about podiatry. Um, can I tell this, Jennifer? When we first met, um, I was a lieutenant at Fort Benning. My wife is a pediatrician, Let me just, so, just so you know that. Um, and, which is a, a children's doctor. And when we met, I was a lieutenant out at Fort Benning, and she was a third-year medical student, and it was like our first date, I think, and I said, oh, well, what type, you know, they were, she was at the point when um, you have to choose your specialty, and I said, oh, well, what, what type of doctor do you want to be? And she says, well, I think I want to be a pediatrician. I, I didn't say it at the time, but in my mind I thought, she wants to be a foot doctor? I'm like... <laughs> Because, you know, the Latin peds, like in Spanish, you know, pee. And it almost was a deal breaker. I'm like, I don't know if I can. I don't know, man. It's, she got some weird fetish or something. What's going on here? And then like a week later, somebody else asked her that question. And I just happened to be standing there. And she said, yeah, I want to be a pediatrician. I, I really love children. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I know some of you ladies spend a lot of time getting your toes pedicured or whatever it is, but feet are ugly. <laughs> and Paul says here that when those feet are carrying the good news, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. Think about being in a desert, think about being dehydrated. And think about somebody cresting that sand dune with a jug of water. <laughs> and their feet are dusty and dry and cracked. But you can see how you can say how beautiful is the carrier, the feet. How beautiful is the one who has brought the water to me. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring and preach the good news. 
Friends, do you see the the magnitude of what God is saying here through Paul? He does not separate the end from the means. God has bound his sovereign will to gospel-carrying dusty feet. Beautiful feet. Think about that. Regular people who are dealing with all of their own junk. Ordinary people. Carrying the most important news in the universe. That's you and me. That's this church. That's what we're doing. It's the mission of every individual Christian to be a gospel carrier. And everything that we herald in Romans chapter 9. And I know there's some people in here that love the doctrine of Romans 9. Yeah! But if you love the doctrine of Romans 9 and you don't feel the weight of Romans 10, you are a cranky curmudgeon. So let's be people with cracked, dusty, ordinary, nasty, stinky feet who carry the gospel. Think about that. Come on. Do you feel, do you feel ill-equipped? God causes the most important news in the universe to ride on beautiful feet. Come on, enough of this. Oh, I'm not ready. Come on, friends. Come on, some of us know a lot about the Bible, but we need like a swift kick in the rear to start being people who carry the good news. And don't wait for us to come up with some program that you got to sign up for. Just do it. Truth number two, the gospel creates what it commands. The gospel creates what it commands. So in verse 16, Paul then reflects after he talks about this chain of events that must happen for the sovereign God to save souls. He reflects on the fact that Israel has not, primary, at least in the majority, obeyed the gospel. And he says... Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then he, then he shifts and reminds himself and us of the sovereignty of God. And he says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That may be kind of an awkward way of saying it for us in English, but I think clearly what Paul is saying here is that the way, we've we've learned from much of Romans, that the way God justifies a person is through faith, that we must put our faith and trust in Jesus, and by our faith alone, in Christ alone, We are justified, we're made right, we're reconciled, we are adopted, we are brought into God's family. But if you you kind of think about it philosophically, how can people who are dead in sin and unable to really do anything to save themselves, how can they even bring faith to the table because because our hearts are dead? We, We can't in our natural state do anything to commend ourselves to a holy God. So how are we going to muster this faith that we need? And what Paul says in verse 17 is this gospel that saves, that must be carried then when it saves a person, gives the very thing that it requires. You see that? 
Faith comes, it comes to us from the outside. It's not something that God looks for in a person as a kind of candidate. It's something that God gives, he grants. The gospel has all the power to save us. The gospel doesn't cooperate with us, it does all the work. And that's what Paul is saying here. Faith comes from hearing And what is it that we need to hear in order for faith to come to us? The word of Christ. In other words, the gospel. That's why we read this morning from Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel had this vision of the valley of dry bones. Friends, remember what John Piper said last week? I I read you that little statement where he said that, that, that Israel in the Old Testament, the life of Israel is like the historical theater which is the, 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 the story of every human soul. Well, I think that's what's going on in, in large part in Ezekiel 37, apart from the vision of what God has said that he's going to do to Israel. I think it's a kind of picture of how God brings salvation to any human soul. We, we don't start off neutral. We don't start off with something that commends us to God. But we are like a valley of dry bones, friends. This should cause us to be hopeful because then when the gospel hits our hearts and God saves a person, he gives, he grants, he makes it alive. He doesn't look for people who are alive, who need a little nudge. He looks for people who are dead and makes them alive. That's why the gospel is so glorious. It doesn't cooperate. It makes. I think this is the clear witness of scripture. Ephesians chapter 2. We read it often. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of rash, wrath like the rest of mankind. What does Paul say about all humanity there? He says that we're dead. Like the rest of mankind in our natural state. Now, you won't find that on t-shirts, on coffee mugs, but that's in the Bible. To be dead in our trespasses and sins does not mean that we're physically dead. I think it is the Bible's way of saying that we are completely spiritually unable to do anything to commend ourselves to God. Spiritually dead people, which verse 3 has said is all of mankind in their natural state before the gospel hits them, don't have faith. So how does faith come? Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He makes a person alive, and now that that person is alive, they are enabled. The gift to that new, newly regenerated heart is faith, and then that person with that faith is freely able to trust in Jesus. Friends, the point is, salvation comes to us from the outside. It starts externally, not internally. Why do I press this point? Because you're saying, Brad, we know this. You say this all the time. I know I do. But don't we all suffer from gospel amnesia? And aren't we, by nature, glory thieves? See, this, this, is, the, this is what's on the line here. Glory. Glory. And we're, by nature, glory thieves. We 
we, we by nature, even as Christians, are prone to steal God's glory. And so we remember this, we remember this gospel when we read it and hear it taught and preached or we see it in the, but then, but then all of a sudden it's Thursday and we're feeling pretty good about ourselves because we're not like the poor knucklehead down the street. That's glory thievery. And we need to realize that we have been saved by grace. Why do I press this point? Because salvation comes to those and only those who are stripped of their self-reliance. And we probably more than any other culture are self-reliant people. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the great Welsh preacher in the mid-1900s in London. He said, listen to this, this is so good. Helplessness is an introduction to grace. Contrast that with much of American church culture, trying to make people feel so good about themselves, but the Bible is actually trying to make us feel bad about ourselves so that we'll finally forget about ourselves and look up and see Jesus. I think that's the point here. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ we don't save ourselves, and this should humble us. So that, that's, that's applying it to salvation. But friends, this has application to our sanctification as well. It's not just a one-time hit where the gospel creates what it commands and then leaves us. It's not just like faith is imparted for salvation. But then even as we grow as believers in Jesus, we grow in the knowledge of him because the more we listen to God's word, the stronger we get to fight and live for him. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the Apostle Peter speaking about this idea of how just putting yourself under the hearing of God's promises and word and the flow and stream of his means of grace will help you grow. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, his divine power, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I, I read those very and great and precious promises as a kind of way of summarizing the whole message of the promise of the gospel of the Bible. So not only does faith for salvation come to us from the outside, but once we are regenerated and born again by the grace that creates the faith in us, as we expose ourselves to God's word and to his people and to the life of the church, it grows us. So just one little application. Are you a believer in Jesus that is not putting yourself underneath and in the flow of God's means of grace in your life, and as a result, your faith is weak? This is a word to you, an exhortation, a gentle but strong exhortation to you to grow your faith by hearing more about Jesus and spending time with his people. So before we move on to the final point, there's three, there's three types of people I have in mind here that I want to apply this to. Are you, maybe you came into this room and you're not yet trusting in Jesus, and maybe this is your first time here and we've sung a bunch of like rich songs. There's been a bunch of scripture being read. Some guy got up and talked about how I'm about to, you know, go crazy and need a rest, you know. <laughs> I'm a little intense and you're like, whoa, what's going on here, man? I just, I just kind of wanted to go to church today, try and figure this thing out. And now this guy's talking about how there's nothing I can do to save myself. 
I thought if I tried harder, maybe I could square my life away, and this seems to be sort of counterintuitive. Turn that upside down. You can't save yourself. You're dead in your sins. At first, that sounds like bad news. And, and in a sense, it is. But it's true news. But turn it upside down. If it was up to you to muster enough sort of goodness or morality or effort to commend yourself to God, and I assume that might be something that's going on in your life because you're here this morning if you're not trusting in Jesus by the invitation of a friend. And so maybe you're thinking, how, how, do, I get, how do I get my life back on track? How do I do it? Run with the system that maybe is latent in your mind that if I just tr try to square myself away, then maybe God will be pleased with me and I'll, I'll be okay. Okay, let's, let's just think about that system that's in your mind. If that's the case, how much effort on your part is enough? How much goodness on your part is enough? How much resolve on your part is enough? Friends, that's a shifting scale that can be a very scary thing to, to measure yourself against. And now look at what this word is saying, what this Bible is saying. It's actually saying there's nothing you can do which seems like very bad news. And the good news is, is that God, who is merciful, saves people who can't save themselves. So now, like every other person that's in this room that trusts in Jesus, you are a candidate for grace. And God in his kindness has brought you here to listen to this. Don't you think that there might be something to that? God saves people who can't save themselves. He saves people who can't muster any goodness in and of themselves to commend themselves to God. Let me read to you from a, a, a Baptist preacher back in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. And you guys, you guys laugh at me because I like Spurgeon so much, but there's a reason why I like Spurgeon so much. I, I love Spurgeon because... Because Spurgeon believed in the utter sovereignty of God, but Spurgeon was an evangelist. Spurgeon knew that his only hope was God, but he pleaded with people to come to Jesus. I also love Spurgeon because Spurgeon wrestled with depression. When Spurgeon was in his early 20s, he was a wonderful preacher, and this church that he was ministering at, preaching at at the time, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, was outgrowing, the crowds were outgrowing the building that they had at the time, and so they were renting out a music hall in London, and somebody maliciously yelled fire at one of his sermons, and it caused a panic in the crowd, and six or seven people were trampled and killed, and it caused a depression in Spurgeon's life that he, it, he, never, he never, it never left him. He was a kind of wounded healer. In, I love Spurgeon because he wasn't, he wasn't strong. He, his, his strength was kind of in his weakness. And the Lord used him in magnificent ways. And listen to what Spurgeon says to you if you're the type of person who thinks that there's no way that God could save me. Listen to what Spurgeon says to you. He says, Come in your disorder. I mean, come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are. 
leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you that are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not? Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text, and he's quoting here Romans 4, 5, and I cannot put it more strongly. The Lord God himself takes to himself this gracious title, him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is not that a wonderful word for you? Do not delay till you have considered this matter well. Oh, friend, come on. Are you convicted about what you did last night or last weekend and you think that somehow that separates you from a God who saves sinners? Put that in your woes me pipe and toke on it. And let the mercy of God, our sin, we sang it, our sins they are many, but mercy is more. God saves dead people. That's what he does. He creates what he commands. Don't leave this room saying that I'm beyond God's reach. That is not true. Come in your disorder. The third, the second type of person I want to I want to address is maybe a believer in here that feels weak, and you you know that you're trusting in Jesus, but you're just discouraged with the state of your sanctification. And I want you to to, to hear these words that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, and He creates what He commands. He has begun a good work in you. This is Philippians one six, that He has begun a good work in you, and He will carry it through to completion. He did not save you to lose you. One of the things that, that I think I probably talk to people most about is assurance of salvation. People that are trusting in Jesus and they, they wonder whether or not they're, they're right with God. They wonder whether or not God can still love them even though they're, 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 their life doesn't really seem to be progressing like they think it should and it's causing them to, to wrestle with assurance. Listen, listen to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. This little paragraph on assurance of grace and salvation. And I pray that this will be a balm to your soul for those of you that are in the middle of the battle of sanctification. This is what these English Puritans said. This infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith that it is always fully experienced alongside faith. So this saving faith that is created in us doesn't always produce in us a kind of assurance that they're, they're honest about the Christian experience. But true believers may wait for a long time and struggle with many difficulties before at- obtaining it. Can I get an amen? All right. Am I the only weak Christian in here? All you, you guys have overcome? All right. Yet, with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. What does that mean? It means that God doesn't usually drop any more loaves of bread out of heaven. 
It means that in the New Testament era, he's given us the means of grace of the hearing of the word, the community of the saints, the gathering together with his people, just a rugged, unspectacular, ordinary means by which he works at salvation and assurance in us by degrees. In other words, the Christian life is unspectacular. It is. And that's why I don't want you, if you leave this place, and I can understand why you would after this sermon, you're like, man, I gotta get out of here. Don't go to a place where the church presents everything as sexy and awesome, because it's not. So two or three people agree with me. All right. Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as, friends, you know what is, you know what is awesome? Heaven. That's when it gets awesome. Until then, we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to struggle and we're going to fight. He's going to give us drops of mercy. This life is good. I'm not saying it's not. But friends, this life is war. And and, and these English Puritans who, who we write off as some like curmudgeons, these cats were in tune with this stuff. Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. In other words, American Christians, stop being so wimpy. Roll up your sleeves and get with it, all right? Come on, put steel in your spines, right? Stop complaining. Come on, life is hard. People don't say hi to you. The sermon isn't that good. The song you wanted wasn't sung, but dig in. In this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and love and thankfulness to God and in strength and cheerfulness and the duties of obedience. These effects are the natural fruits of this assurance. Thus, it does not at all encourage believers to be negligent. In other words, get, get with it. And the final type of person I want to apply this to is, is the believer sharing the gospel. Friends, have confidence when you share the gospel. It brings life. It brings life. We, we, we don't know when God's appointed time is for somebody to come to faith in Jesus. But from what we've read in Romans 10, the way he brings about his sovereign grace in a person's life is through the gospel that's heard. And so we should be like the farmer in Mark chapter 4 that just throws out seed. Our job is not to be a soil inspector. It's to just be a seed thrower. So have confidence in that teenage child who is rebellious and seemingly far from God. They, they don't need primarily some sort of psychotherapy. They need Jesus. And, and, and the way God does it is he doesn't cooperate with something in that person, but he makes light shine in darkness. I have a third point, but that's enough. Friends, the gospel is carried on good news. Let, let's, let's, let's roll up our sleeves and believe it and live it and love it and preach it. Let's pray. Father, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This room is full of, of, of people that, to one degree or another, are, are struggling. 
May, may our faith increase as we, as we hear the word of God. May it put steel in our spines. For my brother or sister that is feeling like they're about to go under because of their lack of growth in you, Lord, encourage them, encourage them. For my friend in this room that came in not knowing you and they, they believed that maybe they were out of the reach of grace, Lord, Lord, disabuse them of that lie from hell. And let them see that you do all the work and it's, it's, it's no coincidence that they're here today hearing this word. And as you say to Israel at the end of this text in Romans 10, Lord, you, you hold out your hand but Israel refused. Lord, we're without excuse. So let the person that's in this room stop with excuses and turn and trust in Jesus now. Lord, I pray that you would create in them what you require, that you would open up their eyes and they would trust in Jesus. That we would all lean forward together and make much of the glorious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray it in his name, for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.